Tonight's show is brought to you by the disincarnate souls of the ancestors. Survivalfeeling.com and you, our listeners. What might await us? Perhaps it's treasure. Perhaps it's a giant bear who's going to rip out our intestines and floss his teeth with our entrails. What is up, all of you wayward souls? Welcome back to the Wayward Stories podcast. I am so happy to have you back here with me in the studio tonight to tell some more spooky tales. It is the spooky season, as we mentioned last week, and we have got five straight weeks of episodes lined up for you guys this time around for this month of October. I'm a big fan of the spooky season, and you know what? What's it all about? It's all about telling stories, y'all. October is about telling stories, folklore, legends, myths, going back to time immemorial. And that's what we are all about here. So it's just kind of like, it's actually really, it's just like my guilty pleasure is creepy stuff. So there is an intersection. There's definitely an intersection between the great outdoors and that which is unknown, which allows our minds to revel in the mystery of the what ifs. So It is a natural intersection, and I am going to allow myself, my personal guilty pleasure, and intertwine these two worlds for the next 31 days, and I hope that you guys are here for the ride. I think you're going to enjoy it. You're going to, if nothing else, learn a whole lot about folklore, mythology, legends, a whole lot of anthropological stuff is going to go on over the next, well, we've got four weeks left now, counting tonight, and we're going to learn a whole lot of stuff that would be considered anthropology. So you will be, if nothing else, just a little bit more well-informed. So before we get into tonight's topic, how is everyone doing? I'm doing okay. Um, Good to be back home. Good to be back in the studio here Um, after another two-week jaunt at work and the loo. Um, not the toilet Lou, but the Saint Lou. And, um, yeah, just glad to be home. Um, I'll tell y'all a quick story though. You know, we got to do this little thing at the front where I tell you guys a little bit about my world every time. That's just part of the game that we're playing here. So this morning I got a little bit of a, little bit of a heartstring puller. Um, I'm not going to go too far into the weeds and too far into the details, but I had a sad little baby bear this morning. Um, she was not ready to go home from her weekend or go to school rather with her daddy. And, um, she was very sad and she had little teardrops and like, y'all, let me just tell you something like, unless you have children, you don't know this. There are no humans on this planet that can break your heart the way that little teardrops on your child's face can break your heart. I'm just saying it's not fun. But anyway, she was just sad, just a little bit sad because she wasn't ready for the weekend to be over. And, um, We were on our way to school, and I was trying to talk her out of being sad, which there's no use in that. And you got to validate feelings, right? That's super important. So, like, I'm like, it's okay to be sad. I understand that. But you also have to try to appreciate the good times and look forward to the good things. And so I'm trying to talk to her and get her all hyped up to go to school, which that's pretty hard. That's like trying to catch a greased pig. And I'm telling her, I'm like, well, look, you get all day to go and you get to see your friends again. And she's like, I don't have any friends. And I'm like, yeah, okay, I know that's a lie. I was like, you talk about your friends all the time. And she's like, no, not really. And I'm like, okay, because like, I get it. Sometimes, trust me, guys, I work for Big Purple. I get it. Sometimes you just need to hate the world and people need to let you hate the world. People need to respect your space and let you just hate things for a minute. Well, she just needed to be sad this morning. So I was like, okay, we just gonna have to let you be sad. But we got to school. And I get her out of the car and we go to walk her. I go to walk her up to the auditorium to drop her off. And this little kid jumps out of the SUV behind us, yells out with a big old grin on his face, waving his arm like a madman. Hi, Maya. And she turned and she looked at him and she waved or whatever. And she put her head back down. And I looked down and I said, what you talking about? You ain't got no friends. I was like, that sounds like a friend to me. And she goes, yeah, well, maybe sorta. But But here's the important part. Beneath that single tiny teardrop on her little bitty baby bear cheek was a smirk. Just the corner of her mouth was just slightly turned up. And the grimace between her eyes was just a little bit lessened. And anyway, all I'm telling you this entire story for is at the end of every episode, what do I tell you guys? 
I tell you guys every time, go out there and do something good in the world. Guys, this is a perfect example. It can be that tiny. It can be that small. It's having a smile on your face and being happy to see someone. My little child was having a morning this morning. She was just having a mood. She was sad and daddy couldn't do anything about it. And here this little boy jumps out and is excited to see her and says hi and waves. And that was all it took to change the game. Like, I'm not saying she wasn't still sad, but it changed everything. I could see it in her little face that that made a difference. Guys, that's what matters in the world. Like we get so hung up on the big picture because we look at the stupid Internet. We read social media too much. We watch the news too much. Things in the world suck, but they don't suck as bad as you think they do. Like I just see World War II, see the Black Plague, see, pick a genocide, just pick one, pick one out of like the hundreds throughout history. And I promise you, things are better now, far better than they've ever, ever, ever been. But when we inundate ourselves with crap, crap is what we give back to the world. That's all I'm saying. So bring it down out of the macro and bring it into the micro. Bring it into your own little world and look around and you can make a big difference. Like that little kid, I'm cool with that little kid. I'm cool with him. I would have like given him a sucker if I'd had one on hand and it wouldn't have come off creepy because he changed my daughter's day just by smiling and waving. And y'all can do the same thing. I can do the same thing. It makes a difference. Anyway, enough soapbox, enough heartstrings. Let's get creepy. Okay, so this episode we are going to be covering a concept. We're actually going to be covering two concepts because I got it in my mind that I've realized something that and made a connection in my my little tiny brain. Um, my little smarticle particles were firing and I think I've made a connection that I have not found anyone else to have made. And I think that there might be some sand to it. Okay, so we're going to get into a couple of concepts. This is going to be a conceptual episode in um, in film and video production. It's called like high concept when you get into something kind of psychological and you're really trying to, to sell something to people. And it's just like a big conceptual idea. It's called high concept. Well, uh, tonight's episode is going to be a high concept episode delivered to you by an imbecile. But if you're cool with that. You might just be entertained by it if you hang around, whether it comes off or not, we're going to try it. So the concepts that we're going to be talking about tonight, well, let's just go in order. Let's go in order. We're going to start with the thin places. Many of you may have heard of the thin places. There are a lot of spiritual people out there in the, um, well, in the outdoor space. A lot of people out there that love nature, love hiking. They're really into spiritual ways. There's a lot of new ageism out there. There's a lot of Wicca out there. There's a lot of different things. Um, so a lot of you are going to be familiar with this. But for those of you that are not, I found an excerpt online that I'm going to read to you to give you just a bit of an overview of the concept of a thin place. And that's all it is, is a concept. There is no like definitive definition. The concept is best, I guess it's best portrayed by out of everywhere that I looked by this author named Eric Weiner. He wrote this in the New York Times on March 9th, 2012. And it's just a couple of paragraphs here. Um, it's not his entire article. And I'm just going to read this to kind of give you an idea because this just really encapsulates the concept of a thin place from kind of a quote unquote agnostic point of view. I mean, the guy's writing for the New York Times. It's not like he's writing for some kind of a, um, a religious um, publication. This is the New York Times. So with that in mind, thin places. Travel like life is best understood backward, but must be experienced forward to paraphrase Kierkegaard. After decades of wandering, only now does a pattern emerge. I'm drawn to places that beguile and inspire, sedate and stir, places where, for a few blissful moments, I loosen my death grip on life and I can breathe again. It turns out these destinations have a name, the thin places. It is, admittedly, an odd term. One could be forgiven for thinking that thin places describe skinny nations, see Chile, or perhaps cities populated by thin people, see Los Angeles. No, thin places are much deeper than that. They are locales where the distance between heaven and earth collapses, and we're able to catch glimpses of the divine, or the transcendent, or, as I like to think of it, the infinite whatever. 
Travel to thin places does not necessarily lead to anything as grandiose as a spiritual breakthrough, whatever that means, but it does disorient, it confuses, we lose our bearings, and we find new ones. Or not. Either way, we are jolted out of old ways of seeing the world, and therein lies the transformative magic of travel. It's not clear who first uttered the term thin places, but they almost certainly spoke with an Irish brogue. The ancient pagan Celts, and later Christians, used the term to describe mesmerizing places like the windswept Isle of Iona, which is now part of Scotland. Heaven and earth, the Celtic saying goes, are only three feet apart, but in thin places that distance is even shorter. Now for our purposes tonight, thin places are heavily understood and considered in spiritual realms and spiritual terms across really all manners of religions um, and all different belief systems. But for our purposes, for this month, the spooky season, you may have heard this at some point, if you don't live under a rock, that Halloween, October 31st, is considered a time where the veil between the living and the dead is much thinner. That's why the original celebrations, the ancient pagan celebrations and Celtic celebrations of Halloween were around the same time frame. And it was actually back then it was called Samhain. And it still is actually to this day called Samhain by people who are practitioners of that, um, which you may understand. You may have seen it written down and never understood how to pronounce it like my uncultured self. It looks like it's spelled like Samhain or Samhain. It's S-A-M-H-E-I-N. I don't have any clue how you get Samhain out of that, but you do. And that's what it is. So consider yourself informed alongside me. But you understand that concept most likely. And that's, you know, most people are somewhat aware with the of the origins of Halloween. And understand that concept of there being this veil, this film, so to speak, this barrier between our world and whatever the next world might be or whatever the next dimension might be and that it's thinner at this time of year. And that's why so many of the ancient practices around spirituality and around spirits came to be. So we are using thin places tonight in this concept, as the author spoke of just places that are mesmerizing, transcendent, almost seem as if there is a shorter distance between us and whatever else is out there. And we're going to tie that in with the spooky season and some spooky things and some of the places that we love to go and explore. Now, that is the broad concept of the thin places. But now we're going to go into a concept known as a liminal space. Now, this is where my little imbecile self has made this connection. Okay, so y'all bear with me as we go through this. I'm going to basically explain in short order what a liminal space is, and then we're going to start talking about places that have all the attributes of both thin places and liminal spaces and possibly make a link that the two are not two, but one and the same. So this definition of a liminal space. Now, this is literally a definition. Okay, this is an understood psychological term. This is a psychological thing. You can define liminal space in several ways. It's talked about as a threshold, and indeed, the etymology of liminal comes from the Latin root word, L-I-M-E-N, limen, which means threshold. Liminal spaces are transitional or transformative spaces. They are the waiting areas between one point in time and the next, or one space in time and the next. Often, when we are in liminal spaces, we have the feeling of being on the verge of something. Liminal space is, of course, a literal space, and there are plenty of examples of physical liminal spaces, as we will see below. But there are also spaces of liminality in our mental states, and this, too, is a type of a liminal space. Um, Liminal spaces that are more internal, more mental, more psychological include things like um, growing into adulthood. Okay, why are there rites of passage in so many cultures around the world? Well, it's kind of addressing the idea of that liminal space. How do you define when someone becomes a grown-up? Okay, how do you know when you've become a proper adult? Like, you don't know. We know the general physical signs within ourselves and of our children of when they are becoming adults, but how do you define that moment? Rites of passage are kind of culture's ways of forcing that moment of transition, but it's really a long transition. But while you're in this space where you're no longer a child, like you no longer possess the innocence of a child, but 
you do not yet have the life experience. You do not yet have the wisdom of accrued time. And, and again, life experience, you are not yet an adult. You're physically not even quite yet an adult. You are in a liminal space. That is a great example of a liminal space. Another crappy example of a liminal space, though it's a great example, is a divorce. When you are getting divorced, you are no longer really married, but you're not quite single yet either. And after many, many, many years of marriage, for many of us, that's a tough place to be in. And you're literally in a no man's land. You're not what you once were but you're not yet what you're going to be. And you're not even sure where that is or what it looks like. That's very much a liminal space. And that's kind of a couple of psychological examples of what a liminal space could be. Now, in the physical realm, liminal spaces are much, much easier to nail down. They're simply like transitional areas. A hallway is a liminal space because it's not a destination point. You know, you use it to get from one space to the next. You don't like live in a hallway. Um, Elevators escalators, um, airport terminals, bus terminals, anywhere that's not your final destination point, but it is a stop in the transition. It is a transitional space. And they kind of have a way of putting people in a little bit of a different mindset. Um, I I highly suggest if you are the kind that likes to research and, and learn about stuff that you go and check out some of the work on liminal spaces, because it, I mean, it can really give you some insight into your own life and insight into yourself. But this is a, a well-researched, a well-documented phenomenon. And a lot of people find that they are very inspired, very creative because of the way that it unnerves their everyday standard operating procedure. Like, you know, you kind of have a groove that you get into every day and say you get hung in an elevator for a minute or in a hallway waiting or at the airport in the terminal or at a passenger turn, a bus terminal. In simple terms, liminal spaces are simply transitional spaces. And I look to make the link tonight because I've noticed this, that I think a liminal space in and of itself may very well be what a thin place is, because as we look at thin places, we're going to notice a pattern as we go through this. Um, maybe they're not all the set, both liminal and thin. Not all of them have to be necessarily. Maybe it's a bit of a Venn diagram where we have an overlap, but I think you'll see what I'm driving at by the end of this episode. So prepare thine selves and girdeth thine loins, because we're going to tell some stories tonight. We're going to talk about some things about places that we are all drawn to out there in nature that are considered thin places by many, many cultures and many, many peoples throughout history. And we're going to tell some stories of some creepy things that happen near and or around those thin places. And also for the sake of, I don't know, humoring myself, indulging my little brain, look at the possibility of them also being a liminal space and possibly, possibly making psychological breakthroughs that could change the world. Don't bet your wallet on that. But you know what? You want to make it to the moon, shoot for the stars. And then if you come up short, maybe you'll still make it to the moon. All right. So let's start tonight by talking about caves. A lot of you guys out there are professional speleologists. A lot of you out there are weekend warrior spelunkers. All of us, I think, have a little bit of that in us that, hey, if I see a cave, pretty darn sure I'm going in it or at least attempting to as safely as I can because caves are fascinating. Don't they draw all of us? I mean, God, look throughout history. Go back through the annals of history. The history of humanity is written on cave walls, y'all. Like, for real, real. Like, way back. God, the earliest known cave paintings, at least the last that I was aware of in any time recent, is in Chauvet Cave in France, which was discovered in 1994 by some professional speleologists who handed it off directly to archaeologists, which is great because it completely preserved everything in there and it is now protected and taken care of. And like guys, there's a record, a history of humanity of cave paintings that go back. I want to say, is it 32 to 36,000 years? I think that's the number range. It's real close if I'm off. We have been drawn to caves since the dawn of time. There's always been something about caves that's drawn us in. It's about the unknown. I think that's what really draws us about caves. It's the unknown. What is in there? What could be in there? What might await us? Perhaps it's treasure. 
Perhaps it's a giant bear who's going to rip out our intestines and floss his teeth with our entrails. You don't know. But that's what makes it so fascinating. You know, there's a reason that that saying goes, curiosity killed the cat. Because curiosity did kill the cat. And we humans are just like cats 99% of the time. Because, like, that's what we do as humans. We get ourselves killed trying to figure out the things that we don't know. Let's see what happens. Caves are inviting. Are they not? They bring us right into that. Now, here's what's interesting about caves. They are absolutely considered thin places. So the first thing we're going to look at here tonight is caves. I have some excerpts here from a really good article written on GaryRVarner.com by Gary R. Varner. Caves and rock fissures have long figured in folklore as entryways to other worlds. Worlds of spirit beings, of different lands, and different times. These entryways are portals to other existences. It was in a cave on Mount Mashu that Gilgamesh became the opener of the way and crossed the Sea of Death to find paradise. The Kaiwasu myth, a visit to the underworld, contains an interesting illustration of these portals between worlds. And I do want to say, all due respect, GaryRVarner.com, I'm going to call it the Kaiwasu story. I am uncomfortable with calling any Native American or any Aboriginal people's stories from around the world as myths. Because, I don't know, I just think it's awful arrogant of us to think that we've reached a point of knowledge where we know how things really, really are. One thing I've learned as an adult is we don't ever really, we don't ever really know exactly the truth. You've always got to leave the door open to be wrong just a little bit. And this is the Kaiwasu story, in my opinion, not the Kaiwasu myth. And it contains an interesting illustration of these portals between worlds. This story tells of a man who entered an opening in a rock to find himself in another world where the spirits of deer killed in the hunt go after death. The story, as reported by Zygmunt, says, The man saw water that was like a window. He could see the mountains through it, but it wasn't water. He passed through it and did not get wet. When he was outside, he looked back and saw the water again. This individual found himself miles further up a canyon just by stepping through this portal. Do we assume that this is simply a tale of a shaman's travels? Or do we consider that such portals may actually exist between realities? Archaeologist David Whitley, an expert on southwestern rock art, states, Caves often served as vision quest locales because shamans believed the supernatural would lay inside or beyond them, and the shaman entered the supernatural when the rocks opened up for him. Caves served as portals to the sacred realm. Whitley goes on to say that because the Indians believed that spirit helpers lived within the rocks, caves, and mountains, it seems natural that within this region, shamans received their power from the rocks and mountains. Because of this, it was the shaman's quest to enter the rock where the supernatural power originated. So you can see there, thin place, place where the veil between two worlds, two realities, is possibly thinner. And the Kaiwasu could enter between the two worlds in these places. This also comes from Apache shamans. They also revered a sacred mountain and the caves that led to other worlds. Morris Opler relates one tale told by an Apache. My father is a shaman. A spirit came to him and told him to go into that mountain, the holy mountain known as Guadalupe Mountain. When he thought he heard a voice telling him to go into the cliff, he turned around and started to enter the mountain. The cliff opened like a door. The shaman entered the cliff and came to another door, which was a great rock turning around and around. They call it by a name that means the rock that swings around together. As the men went through three more rock doors, he finally emerged on the other side of the mountain where an ancient man sat who proceeded to instruct the shaman in healing knowledge and religious ceremonies. Pay close attention to that. That's going to be a theme that pops up, that shamans and medicine men and women throughout many cultures come up fairly often in waterfalls and caves where they learn their trade to take care of their people. Not only caves, but cracks and fissures and boulders were thought by the southwestern tribes to be entryways to the supernatural. The snakes and lizards that are seen coming out of these cracks were regarded as messengers between the worlds. When the shaman traversed into the other world through the rock surface or cave, he was able to experience the ancient creation of the universe. He could also visit with the creator. So you see, the caves are thin places where the other side can be contacted and reached. And I want to make the point that 
a cave is very much a liminal space. A cave is not necessarily a destination point. It is a threshold between the above world and the below world, which is why so many cultures considered caves where you could go to visit the world of the dead. The underworld is usually the world of the dead in most cultures. In some Native American cultures, it is also just where the eternal is. But it is a transitional space between here and there. In physical terms, it's not a destination because it's a transition between the physical upper world and below ground. And I think that there's something to the liminality of that may very well tie to the idea of it being a thin place and how it has emerged throughout the centuries as a place where we can get in touch with the other side possibly, but also where scary stuff lives. And here's a little story to tell you about some scary stuff that might live in caves. So next time you go out and you're thinking about going into a cave, consider that you could run into a kobold. Now, a kobold is a sprite that stems from Germanic mythology and it survives into modern times in German folklore. Although usually invisible, a kobold can materialize in the form of an animal, a fire, a human being, and a candle. The most common depictions of kobolds show them as human-like figures the sizes of small children. Subterranean kobolds are similar to wood kobolds, but instead of living solitary lives, they live in communities or kingdoms, and this is where the ability to turn invisible comes in handy for them, because they can disappear if someone ventures into their domain that they do not want to associate with. They just simply disappear. Unlike kobolds of the forest, if a mine kobold takes a liking to a human that travels into their domain, they will follow them home, often remaining invisible for the entire journey, and they will then take up residence in the house. In the mines, they are known to lead miners to good veins by knocking. The more knocks, the better the vein of ore that is being shown. Mine kobolds can vary from being very beneficial to very harmful. They are blamed for causing mining accidents, replacing good ore with worthless ore, or even poisonous ore, and causing all manner of trouble for miners that they see as invaders and thieves. That's an interesting story. That's an interesting idea to me, the idea of kobolds of the underground, because these little imps, these little sprites, these little dwarf-like things that come from German mythology, they don't just reside in German mythology. That's the best way to describe one that I was able to find to give you an example, but they exist everywhere, y'all. We used to have a book called Mysteries of the Unexplained on my shelf when I was a child, and in that book were many stories about miners who, during disastrous mine accidents, told stories about little dancing imps at the end of the cave that would blow out their, their candles or their headlamps that caused the explosions, that caused the um, collapses of the caves, that caused the timbers to crack. These things exist around the world through various cultures. And there's just like a haunting idea of being in a cave and there being some little dude in there that just might like you and come home with you. So just consider that. The next time you go digging around in a cave, you might bring home more than you bargained for. Now, this is a good time to take a break because we're about 35 minutes in and it's just about time to take a sponsor break. So we will be right back after this break. I want to take a second to tell you guys about tonight's sponsor, Survival Feeling. Survival Feeling is a hiking brand based in Greece and they offer an assortment of gear that's aimed towards the goal of helping you better enjoy your time outside. And that is, of course, what we are all about here at Wayward Stories. I really like this company for a lot of reasons, but chief amongst them is that they were founded with giving back to the community in mind. They donate a portion of all proceeds to organizations like the Wildland Firefighters Foundation to help support those who work to keep us all safe while we're out there trying to find ourselves. We've partnered with them to bring you guys a unique coupon code that will save you wayward souls 15% off of your order. Go to survivalfeeling.com and use offer code waywardstories at checkout. Once again, that's survivalfeeling.com and use the offer code waywardstories. And welcome back. Thank you guys for taking the time to check out our sponsors. It helps the show when you do. But let's jump right back into it because we're running long tonight. So let's get right back into it. Thin places, liminal spaces, and all these wonderful things in the great outdoors that we're all so drawn to. Caves being one of them. But now we're going to move on to waterfalls. Y'all, waterfalls, is it's, it's like a whole dang thing. Everybody's going what they call waterfalling. And in many cases, unfortunately, they're like literally falling off of the water. 
falls. So like, be careful when you go do this, but it's become a huge thing here in Arkansas because we have a billion awesome, beautiful waterfalls in this state. Like good God, we have waterfalls. Um, but there are all over the world and all over the country, obviously, and people are drawn to them by the millions every single year. And there's a draw to it for some reason. And I think that it is not just that they are beautiful because there's a lot of beautiful things in the world that draw people, but there's something special about waterfalls. Almost every waterfall on this planet has some kind of a ghost story attached to it. Almost every single waterfall on this planet has some kind of a spiritual reverence or a spiritual entity attached to it, whether it be for good or for bad. They are highly, highly spiritual places for basically everyone that's ever existed as a culture, at least on this planet. The stories abound. There are too many to pick from. And they are truly inspiring. And I think that there's something to this because a waterfall in and of itself is constantly liminal. It is something that is physically moving in the natural world that is undriven by mechanics and motors and anything of any man-made creation, but it constantly moves. It is constantly in transition. It's constantly liminal. Now that could be said of the river itself, but waterfalls are so magical and they're also not just in transition from one place to the next. They are in a physical transition from high to low. It's just, they're very, very liminal. They're quite cathartic. They're really beautiful places that inspire us to paint, to write, to draw, to create music, to take photos. There's so many things that waterfalls draw us to do. In addition to the spiritual side of them, which has been well recorded, well, well, well recorded throughout history. It was hard to pick out the stories I wanted to find to share with you guys because there was just so many to pick through. Um, but let's talk about some right now. I want to start with the myth and legends of Wisconsin's waterfalls. And this is by Dorothy Molding Brown. And it was published in the Wisconsin Archaeologist, Volume 18, Number 4, in 1938. Pages 110 through 120. In case you ever lay your hands on a copy of the Wisconsin Archaeologist, Volume 18, Number 4, from 1938. It was the belief of the old natives of Wisconsin that the waterfalls which occur in some of its streams were the creations of powerful spirits. Some falls were the dwelling places of spirits the water forming a curtain to hide their secret medicine-making and incantations from the eyes of man. Ninebotso, hero god of the Chippewas of the Old Northwest, constructed the waterfalls in northern Wisconsin to prevent the beavers, upon whom he was waging war, from obstructing the flow of some of the rivers. Y'all, I've seen many a man-made war on beaver go down out here in the sticks, and it's usually quite catastrophic for the beaver and for everyone else involved. I don't know why people have such a problem with beaver dams and awesome lakes with great bass fishing in them, but they do, and they blow up those dams, and it's quite chaotic. In the mythology of the Winnebago, the waterfalls, like the springs, lakes, streams, and rapids, were associated with water spirits. The knowledge of the care of such places was within the province of their water spirit clan. Water was sacred to them. Tobacco and other offerings were made to these spirits at their dens or retreats. Ulysses S. White, a Winnebago, gives their name for a waterfall as Nihoharnila and says that the falls were the homes of the water spirits. Falls were sometimes spoken of as talking waters. They were hallowed shrines from the spirit voices in the falling water the Indians received inspiration and encouragement. Waterfalls are quite, quite spiritual for many, many people. Gosh, the stories through native folklore go on and on and on. Um, but there's more to it. Here's some of the context for the spirits of the waterfalls and the spirits of the water as spoken of in native lore. Indian fairy folk commonly spoken of as the Little Indians, frequent the vicinity of waterfalls. The Chippewa name for them is Little Manitou, which means spirit men. Sister M. Macaria, St. Mary's School, Odonna, in a recent letter to Charles E. Brown, May 24, 1938, mentions these fairy folk. These little men roam about near bodies of water. Bad River Falls in the Bad River is one of their favorite haunts. Marble Point is another, and the Apostle Islands are one of their main stomping grounds. They may be seen from a distance, but to approach them is an impossibility. 
These little men give great power if dreamed about. An old Chippewa traveling years ago over the trail to Lake Superior saw a gathering of these puck wedgies near the base of a waterfall. They were dressed like Indians, apparently holding council. He very wisely did not attempt to approach them. Waters of the Black River, approaching the falls, seemed to sense the compelling mystery of the fearful plunge and hurry faster as each step of the precipice is neared. On the crest of the brink of the waters roll and toss, but momentarily are transformed into a white spray that turns more vaporous down the glide. The receiving basin seethes and foams like a boiling cauldron. The gorge below is very narrow for a short distance, and the walls are twisted forms indicating volcanic origin. In this foaming cataract, several spirits lived. Sometimes, say the Indians, one could hear their voices or war songs above the roar of the falls of the great spirit. Woe to those who in years past paid no heed to the warnings or commands of these spirit voices. These little people, puck wedgies, have also been seen near this waterfall. Take note of that name, y'all. Puck Wedgies. They gonna make a comeback here in a couple episodes. We're really gonna get into that. Um, and that's a great one that I am really, really looking forward to and cannot wait to talk about. But we need to stay on track for tonight. Water spirits and waterfall spirits and waterfalls harboring the medicine men and the shamans of the ancient natives is a recurring theme. It is something that comes up over and over again throughout different cultures. Guys, and this spans continents. This isn't just of Native Americans. This is from ancient Europeans. This goes back to Celtic origins and a lot of that stuff, guys, predates Columbus. Much of it is pre-Columbian. That is a recurrent theme in a lot of these kinds of stories that makes even the most logical skeptic amongst us take a step back and go, huh, how do all these disparate cultures, divided by entire oceans that were not breached until 1492, have stories of the same kinds of spirit beings? How do those originate, and how can they generate independently, unless maybe there's really something there, and these people are just describing the same things in their own ways, through their own cultural lenses. Anyway, it's fascinating, and that's what we're here to do, y'all. Remember the suspension of disbelief? It's the spooky season. Suspend your disbelief and enjoy the ride as we roll back the curtains on the theater of our mind and allow ourselves to enjoy the ideas of, well, maybe we're not alone out there. When we're taking that picture of Pam's Grotto, when I was sitting there at 6.45 in the morning getting one of my favorite pictures I've ever taken from behind that grotto as the waterfall cascaded down, how fun is it to think that maybe I wasn't there alone? But let's get on to the next section, which is wells. Wells are super creepy. Like, just forget everything else. Wells are super creepy. Not only are they considered thin places throughout multiple cultures, as we're about to see, not only are they literally liminal spaces, they are a transition from below ground to above ground. What's down there to what's up here? They're both of the things that we're talking about in our high concept episode tonight. They're also just effing creepy. Like, you ever look down in a well? Okay, let's go back. The ring. Y'all remember the ring? Y'all remember Samara? Oh, God. Okay, I was hiking maybe 10 years ago with a couple of friends of mine, and we were kind of more trekking. We weren't following any established hiking trails, but we were kind of trekking near Hurricane Creek in the Ozark National Forest in kind of northwestern Arkansas, and came across, which you will often in the Ozarks, some very old homestead remnants. You'll find root cellars dug into the side of a hill. You'll find walls everywhere, stacked stone walls all over the place. We came across one of those places and we were kind of exploring around and there was the car hood, a really, really old car hood upside down on the ground. And we thought to ourselves, man, that's really cool. Look, and I hollered at my friend. I said, hey, what, how old do you think that car is? Roll that hood over and let's see what kind of car it was and see if we can figure out how old it was. Cause it was, you know, super, it looked like it's probably from the 1930s or 1940s. That was the kind of style of hood that it was. It was just laying there by itself, upside down on the ground. And he rolled that hood over. And what was underneath that hood was like the well from the ring. Like we looked down in there and I immediately, immediately soiled my pants. Like it was 
I mean, I'm talking a rock lined. Well, it was beautiful. I have a picture of it somewhere. I hope still on some old drive in a cloud somewhere, but it was a beautiful well, but it was at ground level. The hood was actually there to keep people safe and from falling in it because eight, 10 feet below the ground level was just water. And that's what's so terrifying about wells to me. And I think many people is like the unknown. What is in that water? A, it could be anything. It could be Samara for God's sakes, or it could just be like full of creepy, cruddy crap that's built up and catches your leg in it and then drowns you and you die in a dark void in the middle of nowhere. That's terrifying. Dark water is not my jam. Like I'm probably more terrified of dark water than I am of snakes. I'm getting a lot better with snakes over time. I guess I'm just getting old and I don't care so much anymore. But dark water, dark water, I fear dark water. And this is coming from a kid that used to swim in strip pits. If you don't know what a strip pit is, look into a strip pit. Oh, it's only like 200 feet deep of nothing but black water. We used to jump into those dang things off of cliffs. I don't like peer pressure will make you do stuff. Peer pressure will make you do stuff. That's all I'm saying. But point being, I'm terrified of dark water and wells are dark water. There's something about confined spaces and dark water and wells are that. And we roll back this awesome old car hood in the middle of the woods, in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of abandoned homestead. And there's a well in my mind was just a reeling with the idea of creepy black haired girls crawling out of that well on all fours like Samara did, which is interesting because we're going to talk about how that has cultural significance to the story we're telling tonight in just a second. But let's get into definition of British folk customs by Christina Hull and her description of the importance of well dressings and the spirits of wells and their possible origins. It goes as such. Springs and wells have always been venerated from exceedingly remote times onward because water is a basic necessity of life. And to our forefathers, it seemed a mysterious and spirit-haunted thing, a lively spring which brought fertility to the land where it flowed and to men and beasts who depended upon that land was once almost universally supposed to be the dwelling place of some powerful spirit to whom prayer and sacrifice were due. Water being considered awe-inspiring and a separator of realities has not disappeared in modern times. Instead, it has evolved and is flowing like the water itself. And here we come to the idea of Samara from the ring. Because Samara is not the original story in the ring. Samara is an American adaptation of a Japanese concept known as an onryo. And an onryo is a spirit that is like, its whole driving force in the world is vengeance. And that's terrifying. And in Japanese culture, they have almost always been portrayed as a female. And like, God, Samara, if you've seen the ring, you've seen essentially a description of what a Japanese onryo is. That's how they're usually portrayed in Japanese culture. And they are spirits who literally are out to wreak vengeance. All I really should do here is probably just read you the definition of that. Cause I did print a nice little thing so that I can give you the best information possible on Rio in Japanese traditional beliefs and literature on Rio, literally vengeful spirit, sometimes rendered as wrathful spirit reverts to a ghost, a Yuri believed to be capable of causing harm in the world of the living, injuring or killing enemies, or even causing natural disasters to exact vengeance, to readdress the wrongs it received while alive, then taking their spirits from their dying bodies. Wow, that took a dark turn. Origin. While the origin of Onryo is unclear, belief in their existence can be traced back to the 8th century and was based on the idea that powerful and enraged souls of the dead could influence, harm, and kill the living. The earliest Onryo cult that developed was around Prince Nagaya, who died in 729, and the first record of possession by the Onryo spirit affecting health is found in the Chronicle of Shoko Nihongi in 797, which states that Fujiwara Hirotsug's soul harmed Jinbo to death. So there you go. Concept link made. 8th century. Okay, 8th century. And we're still making movies about them to this day. And the ring, the ring too, and then that other ring that nobody ever watched. Um, guys, it's it's an evolving thing. It goes back for centuries, and it still comes forward through to today. Here's another story about a creepy monster in a well 
because like it's the creepy season that's what we're here for guys and this one is from um danish folklore and it is called the brondmand and it just means the well man there are scare creatures from danish folklore they live in wells and grab people who come to collect water Humans and animals who die in the well become the property of Brondman, and he can send their spirits into nearby towns to make people sick. You should see the representation of this guy in front of me. He's creepy. You know what? I bet I can show you, at least for y'all watching on YouTube. Take a look at this cat. You don't want nothing to do with him. I don't even, man, that's nightmare fuel. That is nightmare fuel. Anyway, people of the church, meaning priests or holy men or anyone of the like, have no power over Wellman or Brondman, which is very unusual for Nordic folklore creatures. The only description of Wellmen is that they have ink-black skin to better hide in the dark, and they have red glowing eyes. Everything else is up for interpretation. Only wise women can banish Wellmen and free the captured souls in his well by throwing gold in the water. This is said to buy the Wellman off, and he will leave. So, at least you can barter with Wellman. At least wise women can. And I think that it's no coincidence that it takes a woman to get rid of an idiot man. But, there's so many stories about wells and well creatures. And springs and spring creatures. And there's a reason for that, guys. We are drawn to them. Why are we drawn to them? Because they are thin places, according to basically everyone ever. If you go to any of those places, tell me that there's not a palpable feeling that comes over you. I'm not saying you're like being possessed by something like, stay with me. Don't go that far off the deep end. What I'm saying is they inspire a sense of awe. They are a different kind of place. And that is the definition of what a thin place is. And wells and large springs of water. God, I just went to Mammoth Spring last year. It's like nine and a half million gallons of water an hour. They're literally transitional spaces from what's below ground to above ground. And these have like the added portion of it being that they bring life. They bring life. Water is life for all living things. The folklore, the mythology, the legends are there because they have that sense of awe inspiring beauty. They have that sense of, you know, not knowing what's down there. What's on the other side of that? They are thin places. And when you think about it, they're also liminal spaces because they're the transition from what's below to what's above. What's down there comes to what's here. We don't know what's down there. That adds to the mystery. And also, there's like a degradation factor. There's something interesting in that to me. It's like what's down there is the purest form of what we're going to get. When it comes to wells and springs, what's down there in the ground, that's from source at least. Naturally speaking, from source, that's as clean as it's going to get. And as soon as it comes out to be oxygenated in the free air and gets exposed to the above ground, it's exposed to bacteria, it's exposed to all kinds of different things. I mean, God, fish live in water and poop in it. And so do frogs. And so do a million other things. Like the water starts to intrinsically become dirty the moment it reaches the surface. It is a transition. The well the spring is a transition point. Therefore, it is a liminal space. And I think that's a part of the allure. And once again, to make my point, it's a thin place. I think they're one and the same. And I think that's what draws us there. And when we go and we take our pictures and we are drawn to these places and we feel that thinness, you know, consider for just one second that Samara or Brondman might be in that well waiting on you. Have fun sleeping with that. Now, Let's move on to our next topic for tonight, which is going to be, well, it's going to be our last topic for tonight. We are going to talk about mountains. We could talk about a lot of things, guys. We could talk about rivers as a liminal space, as a thin place, because they are. Y'all, I found out recently there's a singing river in Mississippi. It like emits a humming sound sometimes that many people for centuries have heard. We're going to look into that someday. That's fascinating. Um, beaches are liminal spaces. They are thin places. God, they are revered in cultures the world over. There were so many stories, there were too many to even try to pick from. But they're definitely thin places in that they inspire us. They draw us. They're awe-inspiring. That's where, y'all, you go spend much time on a beach anywhere, especially on that Pacific coast where it's so dramatically beautiful, where the mountains meet the ocean and it's just dramatically beautiful. You're going to see a whole lot of journals out, and people writing 
of easels out and people painting, of tripods out and people photographing. There's so much going on at the ocean. There's so much inspiration there, but we're not going to go into that because that's a little bit too lighthearted for the spooky season. We're in the spooky season and we're looking for creepy things. So our last um, topic of the night is going to be about mountains. And it's very interesting. We're going to talk about Henry David Thoreau a little bit. And we're going to talk about some of the Indian tribes, the Native American tribes, and how they viewed mountaintops. But think about a mountaintop for just a minute. It is in and of itself considered by almost all peoples all over a thin place. Think of all the holy and religious shrines and places around the world. The Temple Mount in Jerusalem. It's important to three, not one, but three major world religions that make up like what? Five-eighths of the entire world's population? Four, you know, it's a little bit more than half. Um, in almost all mountaintops, like God, think about Mount quote-unquote Olympus. Okay, like I know it's not a... But my point is mountaintops are considered spiritual places because to most people throughout history that is the closest you can get to quote unquote god whatever you believe that is and i think the thinness of the air on some of these really high mountains where the oxygen is thin i think that plays y'all i think that has something to do with it just being honest i've been in some pretty thin air and like you'll see some things it gets a little trippy sometimes but my point is they are absolutely considered thin places and there are shrines and monuments the world over. It doesn't even have to be a mountaintop. It could just be the highest hill in an area. Oh my God. Look at um, Potbelly Hill. What? Dadgummit. I just went completely blank on the name. It's like, it sets back our archaeological record by like roughly 10,000 years. It's one of the, it's in Turkey. And I just went completely blank on the name, and I'm not going to take the time right now to look into it. But it's considered to be the world's first religious temple, and it literally sets back our clock on archaeology by like 10,000 years. It'll dawn on me in a minute. Um, but we're going to keep moving because I have not a whole lot of time to wrap up this whole episode tonight and get to editing. Um, but let's talk about mountains. The Penobscot Indians believe that an evil spirit called Pomola which means he curses the mountain, resided during the summer season on the top of Mount Katahdin, the greatest of mountains. This is in the Penobscot tradition. You may have heard of Katahdin. They make a pretty good water filter, and it's named after an actual mountain in Maine. So, anyone that didn't know that, now you know. Um, they offered sacrifices to him to appease him so that he should not curse them or otherwise injure them. Although they hunted and fished in the woods and lakes around Mount Katahdin, they never attempted to go to the top of the mountain in the assurance that they would never be able to return from that place, but either be killed or devoured by the evil spirit Pomola. It would not be improper here to give a brief episode of the Indian tradition concerning this evil spirit Pomola residing upon Mount Katahdin, a mountain famous amongst the Indians of Maine, a tradition which is believed by the Indians unto this very day. They relate that several hundred years ago, while a Penobscot Indian was encamped eastward of Mount Katahdin on the autumn hunting season, a severe and unexpected fall of snow covered the whole land to a depth of several feet. Being unprovided with snowshoes, he found himself unable to return home. After remaining several days in the camp, blocked up with drifts of snow, and seeing no means of escape, he thought that he was doomed to perish. Hence, as though it were despair, he called with a loud voice on Pomola for several times. Finally, Pomola made his appearance on top of the mountain. The Indian took courage and offered to him a sacrifice of oil and fat, which he poured and consumed upon burning oils out of the camp. As the smoke was ascending, Pomola was descending. The sacrifice was consumed when his spirit was only halfway down the mountain. Here the Indian took more oil and fat and repeated the sacrifice, till Pomola arrived at the camp, and the Indian welcomed him, saying, "'Yon are welcome, partner.' And Pomola replied, You have done well to call me partner, because Yon have called me by that name. You are saved. Otherwise, you would have been killed by me. No Indian has ever called on me and lived, having always been devoured by me. Now I will take you on the mountain, and you shall be happy with me. Pomola put the Indian on his shoulders, bid him close the, his eyes, and in a few moments, with a noise like the whistling of a powerful wind, they were inside the mountain. The Indian described the interior of Mount Katahdin as containing a good, comfortable wigwam, furnished with abundance of venison and with all the luxuries of life. Pomola gave him his daughter to wife and told him that after one year he could return to his friends on the Penobscot and that he might go back to the mountain to see his wife any time he pleased and remain as long as he wished. 
He was warned that he could not marry again, but if he should marry again, he would be at once transported to Mount Katahdin with no hope of ever more going out of it. After one year, the Indian returned to the old town and related all that had happened to him on Mount Katahdin and the circumstances through which he got into it. The Indians persuaded him to marry again, which he at first refused, but they at last prevailed on him to marry. And the morning after his marriage, he disappeared, and nothing more was heard of him. They felt sure he had been taken by Pomola into Mount Katahdin, as he had told them. So you can see there, there's a history in the Penobscot Nation that held the top of Mount Katahdin as sacred. No one was allowed there. It was a thin place. It was a sacred place. It was a holy place. When we go, when we go to the tops of mountains, do you not yourself recognize the awe-inspiring beauty? Do you not also recognize within your own soul a bit of a feeling, a bit of something that's different, that that is a special place? And that is exactly what's been recorded here in the Penobscot tradition. Now, I just want to throw this in here for interest because it is of interest and it's by Henry David Thoreau and this is the Katahdin Passage from his book, The Maine Woods. And it actually talks about that tradition of the Penobscot. And so we want to go over it because Henry David Thoreau, I think it accomplishes two purposes. I think that we maim two birds with the same stone here because not only does it kind of back up our passage about Pomola and the Penobscot and Mount Katahdin, but it also really encapsulates the ethereal nature, almost the seemingly spiritual nature, whether it is spiritual or not, of a mountaintop at the same time as only Henry David Thoreau can do it. So I think that it's a really good way to wrap up tonight's episode is to talk about his challenge of Katahdin. At length, I entered within the skirts of the cloud, which seemed forever drifting over the summit and yet would never be gone but was generated out of that pure air as fast as it flowed away. And when, a quarter of a mile further, I reached the summit of the ridge, which those who have seen in clear weather say is about five miles long and contains a thousand acres of tableland, I was deep within the hostile ranks of clouds, and all objects were obscured by them. Now the wind would blow me out a yard of clear sunlight, wherein I stood, and then a gray dawning light was all that it could accomplish. The cloud line ever rising and falling with the wind's intensity, Sometimes it seemed as if the summit would be cleared away in a few moments and smile and sunshine, but what was gained on one side was lost on another. It was like sitting in a chimney and waiting for the smoke to blow away. It was, in fact, a cloud factory. These were the cloud works, and the wind turned them off from the cool, bare rocks. Occasionally, when the windy columns broke into me, I caught sight of a dark, damp crag to the right and the left, and the mist driving ceaselessly between it and me. It reminded me of the creations of the old epic and dramatic poets, of Atlas Vulcan, the Cyclops, and Prometheus. Such was the Caucasus and the rock where Prometheus was found. Aeschylus had no doubt visited such scenery as this. It was vast, titanic, and such as man never inhabits. Some part of the beholder, even some vital part, seems to escape through the loose grating of his ribs as he ascends. He is more lone than you can imagine. There is less of substantial thought and fair understanding in him than in the plains where the men do inhabit. His reason is dispersed and shadowy, more thin and subtle, like air. Vast, titanic, inhuman nature has got him at disadvantage, caught him alone, and pilfers him of some of his divine faculty. She does not smile on him as she does in the plains. She seems to say sternly, Why came ye here before your time? This ground is not prepared for you. Is it not enough that I smile in the valleys? I have never made this soil for thine feet, this air for thine breathing, these rocks for thine neighbors. I cannot pity nor fondle you here, but forever relentlessly drive thee hence to where I am kind. Why seek me where I have not called thee, and then complain because you find me but a stepmother? Shouldst thou freeze or starve or shudder thy life away, here is no shrine, nor altar, nor any access. To my ear. The tops of mountains are among the unfinished parts of the globe, whither it is a slight insult to the gods to climb them and pry into their secrets and try their effect on our humanity. Only daring and insolent men, perchance, go there. The races, as the natives, do not climb mountains. Their tops are sacred and mysterious tracks never visited by them. Pomola, always angry with those who climb to the summit of Katahdin, 
According to Jackson, who, in his capacity as the geological surveyor of the state, has accurately measured it. The altitude of Katahdin is 5,300 feet, or a little more than one mile above the level of the sea, and he adds, It is evidently the highest point in the state of Maine, and is the most abrupt granite mountaintop in New England. The peculiarities of that spacious tableland on which I was standing, as well as the remarkable semicircular precipice or basin on the eastern side, were all concealed by mist. I had brought my whole pack to the top, not knowing but I should have to wipe, make my descent to the river, and possibly to the settled portions of the state all alone, and by some other route, and wishing to have a complete outfit with me. But at length, fearing that my companions would be anxious to reach the river before night, and knowing that the clouds might rest on the mountain for days, I was compelled to descend. So you see, Henry David Thoreau majestically describes what it's like on the top of a mountain, and he draws in the capacity of the other side, the spirit world in Mother Nature, and how unrelenting she can be, especially at such heights. He draws on the Penobscot tradition and speaks of it in Pomola, the angry evil being that according to the Penobscot that resides on top of Katahdin. This is not a single individual account all alone in the world. There are many the world over probably if truth could be known and all could be told for every mountaintop on this planet that has ever been inhabited near or by any cultural group of people, mountaintops inspire awe. And it is my contention that the awe that they inspire and the fear that they inspire, I mean, it's spooky season again, the fear that they inspire, the unknown that they inspire, the awe that they inspire, all comes from the liminality of that space. A mountaintop is a liminal space because it is, I mean, quite literally, physically, the transition from earth to sky. Consider that. And it's also... Metaphorically speaking, the transition from earth to sky, to whatever resides in the sky, and it has given rise to many, many stories. And who are we to say that not all of those stories, that there might not be truth to some of them? It only takes one. I heard that on another podcast I love. It only takes one story to be true for the concept to be proven. It's all it takes. They don't all have to be. But they are all beautiful in their cultural origins. They all tell a story that we can read into to understand more about ourselves. Because all of these stories from all of these different nations around the world are truly our forefathers. And they tell of times that we don't understand and we don't have records that reach back to. But they tell us something about ourselves. And that is human nature. What we are driven by is that which we don't know that which we don't understand, that which we wish to know more about, that which we fear. And I think in that is what drives us as humans. I think deep down inside of all of us, the human spirit is to explore the unknown. But when you don't know something, oftentimes it's scary. And from those fears can be born stories. And sometimes, sometimes guys, they're not just stories. Sometimes there's real things there. Sometimes there's things that we don't understand, things that we can't quite understand, things that are just out of our perception and our five senses. I think that's possible. I'm not so arrogant to think that I know that can't be true. I think it's very possible. And we have stories, countless stories, the world over, from thin places the world over, places of transition, places of liminality, places where one thing is becoming another thing, places where the laws that we understand about the world are maybe just a little bit more flexible. Like the thin air at the top of a mountain, the falling of water and a rainbow in the falls, a moonbow. Guys, there's a moonbow at a waterfall in Kentucky. There is an eternal flame burning beneath a waterfall in New York State. There are things this world over that are spiritual in nature to the people that observe them, that drive them, whether it truly is about a spiritual other side or simply another aspect of the human psyche that resides within us. It drives us to a place where we become more creative, a place where we become more inspired, a place where we become more introspective, and a place where we become, in my opinion, better people. Therefore, I'm all about thin places. I'm all about entertaining 
the unknown, entertaining the idea that there could be puck wedgies living beneath the waterfalls, that there could be spirits on the top of the mountain, that there could be women in white walking down the beaches of the ocean. Why not? It's the spooky season, and it's the season to consider and allow all things to be possible because it's a lot more fun that way. Life is a lot more fun that way, at least in my opinion. I hope, if nothing else, I've at least given you pause to consider. There's a lot out there, guys. A lot of things we can't understand. A lot of things that draw us, and we don't know why we are drawn. And we go there, we take it in, and I think when we leave, we come out a better person. If we really, really take the lessons we can learn there to heart. And I just hope that I've inspired you on some level to open your mind to the possibilities of who knows. And also, if nothing else, just open you up to the idea of I need to go chase more thin places. I need to go chase more liminal spaces. And I need to get out there and I need to record what I'm doing. And I need to share me and my story and my unique perspective with the world. Because that's how, in my opinion, the world becomes a better place. For each of us that goes and sees something new to our own little world and learns something new, we broaden our horizons. We expand our understanding and we have something more to offer to those in our little world. And it's like that little spider work network thing. If we can inspire two people, then those two people might inspire four and so on and so on until everything in the world just gets a little bit better. Anyway, thank you guys for tuning in tonight and putting up with me for the last hour and 15 minutes. I hope that you have been entertained. I hope that maybe you've been inspired, but regardless, I hope that you choose to join me again next week. Until then, you guys, please rate, review, and subscribe. That's more important. I say it over and over again because it's so important. It helps us more than anything. Um, Please rate, review, and subscribe. If you want to check out our YouTube, our Instagram, any of that stuff, waywardstories.com. Write your stories into us. If you've got a creepy story, we'll tell it next year. Or heck, we don't even have to wait till next year. Write it into mywaywardstory at gmail.com. And again, I just appreciate you guys. I hope to see you again next week. And until then, you guys get out there and be good to each other.